Well, I'm going to talk about three things uh, in the next few minutes. First of all, some general comments about the circumstances that we're facing, as I see it. Um, I'm going to then talk about what I conclude about the nature of financial markets uh, and now how we need to understand them based on uh, what I think to be those circumstances. And then I'm going to finish off uh, by talking about the men in the black hats, that is, the people who've been betrayed as the villains uh, in the, all of this offering my assessment. Um, for those of you who don't know, of course, the people, the men in the black hats are the people in Gunsmoke and Bonanza and the High Chaparral, those wonderful uh, Western TV shows and movies and so on. Um, uh, if you wanted to find out who the, the, the bad guy was, you just looked at who was wearing the, the black hat. Okay, so let me start off by uh, talking about the circumstances as I uh, see it. And I, uh, when I was here earlier, I was uh, mentioning to Paul that I think from the beginning we're probably going to be at loggerheads because um, <coughs> his paper appears to be about um, the actual substance of subprime and housing and so forth. So forth. And, well, mine isn't really. Um, indeed, I think the key thing that I want to get across as a beginning is really that the subprime element of all of this um, is really very small. I understand that Graham was talking about tails and dogs earlier and um, this fits in very well. I think the Bank of England's financial stability report of April talked about uh, subprime being worth about 0.7 trillion dollars which is a large sum of money, but it's not a big proportion of 175 trillion, which is the total value of capital markets that they were comparing it with. So in that sense, if we are talking about a subprime crisis, we are talking about a tiny, tiny, tiny little tail and a very, very, very large dog in proportional terms uh, being wagged. Okay, so my implication, of course, from all of this is that the subprime crisis per se is misnamed. Um, clearly, there is a subprime crisis, uh, or there is a mortgage crisis, or there's a housing crisis, or a real estate crisis, or what have you, um, of various orders and various sorts, and it's interesting and it's important, but the global financial crisis per se is something else. Um, global finance, financial actors have, have been pursuing mortgages, uh, like they've been pursuing credit card receivables uh, and loans of all sorts as a way of creating more instruments to trade uh, in a context of a highly um, unrewarding financial market, a financial market in which yields were otherwise very low. And this has also stimulated uh, an enormous flow of funds to the east. I fear to suggest that the next financial crisis we will see is a major credit meltdown um, in East Asia. I notice obviously that Russia is experiencing some elements of a crisis right now, uh, but I do, I'm pretty sure for a, for a fact that there's been very little assessment of credit worthiness on the funds that pension funds have been sending out to East Asia for the last five years. So that's something to look forward to. That would truly be a cataclysm if that happened at the same time as we were dealing with all of this. That would be clearly the 1930s, that would be 
um, a sort of Polanyian moment, I suppose, uh, without equivocation. Um, and I can't deny that some elements of this I have been enjoying. I have actually <laughs> felt, I've lived in Britain for 13 years and I've been surrounded by people who've been obsessed with the housing market and coming up to me in corridors and all sorts of fields of walks of life and going on about their house values and so on. And, um, and I have to say that, you know, goes around, comes around, fellas. <laughs> anyway, uh, as I was suggesting earlier, this really, there really are two crises, <coughs> subprime crisis, the housing crisis in general, in uh, this country, United States, and the other uh, developed countries, is an interesting one. Uh, but that's not really what I'm talking about, because for me, it's just a stream of, of financial uh, flows that have been able to be turned into uh, tradable se uh, securities. Now, what we have experienced is a valuation crisis. And um, incredibly, Robert Reich, who I, I can't imagine is qualified to talk about these things, but nevertheless <laughs> appears on Newsnight uh, every other day, uh, got this right. It is indeed a, a valuation crisis. That is... Um, a crisis in which uh, financial firms have uh, been unsure about the values of the securities they hold and those held by uh, their uh, competing uh, financial firms or their cooperating firms, as the case may be. Now, um, what we have here is a situation where the subprime, cri the subprime uh, data that came out in the spring of 2007 essentially acted as a tripwire to a bubble or euphoric moment um, in global finance. That is the significance of housing, I think, uh, that it acts as the thing that pricks that, uh, that bubble. Unexpected information, nothing particularly extraordinary. I mean, if you're going to lend money to people who don't have good credit ratings, they are going to default uh, at a certain level. Uh, what happened in that particular case was the level was slightly higher uh, than anticipated, and this was the beginning of this crisis. Now, the second thing, so I've talked a bit about the circumstances as I see it, the tail and the dog, um, the global financial crisis stimulated uh, by these unexpected bits of data associated with, uh, with housing. But housing is not really uh, now what this is about. So how do we understand this? What are the implications for understanding uh, financial markets? Now, Robert, Robert Schiller, who's an interesting economist, and um, uh, Prolific and has just released a new book on, um, on the crisis. Everybody seems to have a little book on the crisis. Um, his suggestion is that we, we, we really, and I think it's, you know, it's, it really just confirms, I suppose, my own prejudice, prejudices on this, but it's always useful to cite as uh, an authority, uh, of course. And Schiller suggests that we have to understand that uh, global finance is not limited to the brute facts of profit and loss. If it was, um, I think Morgan Stanley had a reasonable return on its last year of trading, they wouldn't be in trouble, uh, etc. I mean, it, it's not about the brute facts of profit and loss. Um, uncertainty, which is something that we are hearing uh, again and again in um, uh, the media, um, you know, can, can seem ins insubstantial, the idea of uncertainty, but of course held as a collective idea, as an intersubjective state, uh, becomes what John Searle, the philosopher, would call a social fact. That is, a, the basis upon which action occurs. 
Um, and of course this is what I think has moved markets and I think it's moving markets right now. And if you think social facts are insubstantial, well then um, I guess what I would suggest to you is that the substance of the state isn't its tanks and aircraft carriers and so on. In fact, it is precisely this understanding that the state is a legitimate authority, that it is a social fact, which of course explains uh, how the Berlin Wall can fall in a context of having lots of guns and tanks in East uh, Germany and Eastern Bloc generally. Now the correct conclusion that follows uh, from this, I think, is that much of the intellectual equipment that we have to understand finance is not very useful for understanding this crisis. Um, that the actual dynamics uh, of a crisis, the dynamics of global finance as a sort of historical entity that moves and changes, you know, is not really sufficiently captured by what you might call rocket science, the kind of technical approach to analysing risk uh, that has been so rewarded on Wall Street and London in the last 10 to 15 years. Now, defenders of global finance, the defenders of the rocket science, would suggest, of course, that the non-social analysis, in other words, that sort of technical analysis, probabilistic analysis, would work fine uh, in normal times, and that that's really how we should assess it. But it seems to me that um, given financial volatility and given the, the tendency of our system to produce crises um, again and again and asset price bubbles again and again, that that really isn't good enough. And that therefore, um, really, there is a, an intellectual problem or a, um, an academic problem in terms of understanding of finance. There are better ways of understanding finance as a diachronic historical phenomenon, as a social and psychological uh, phenomenon. Uh, understanding it as rocket science is not enough. Anyway, that's really my background, to look at the circumstances and then to sort of um, say, yes, I was right all along and that finance is to be understood in a social way, which is what I've been saying to my students all year, sort of dancing for joy at every sort of twist in the crisis, and now here we are, who would have thought in September, and it gets worse and worse, and I can, and, and publicly these people become vilified in a public moral panic, not just a private or elite moral panic, but a real public noisy moral panic, the sort of moral panic that we have for anti-social anti uh, uh, um, uh, young men and for um, solo mothers and all that sort of thing. Here we are, the bankers are getting out. Well, that's a, quite a nice moment for me, I guess. <laughs> However, um, part of that, I guess, is to sort out what is a reasonable um, identification of a villain from what is com uh, sort of unreasonable. And yes, the kind of red braces, chaps, you know, we can have a go. Um, Jeffrey's not here. Well, okay, so the, the, the accusation, of course, is that my friends uh, and associates, the um, American bond rating agencies, Moody's and S&P, uh, are at fault. Now, I just have to give you an aside here about S&P and Moody's because a certain well-known IPE scholar who studies global finance said to me at the APSA conference two years ago, oh, Tim, why don't you just get a life and get over these bond rating agencies? <laughs> well, I'm pleased to say that particular individual who's chair of my panel at APSA um, uh, uh, the beginning or the end of last month or the beginning of this month uh, took back his words because it just turns out that they're more important than either he or I uh, thought they were. So here they are again. 
these things are, are, are painted as the villains, as the men in the black hats. Right, the real target, initially I think of a, of a quiet moral panic and then as I say a more noisy public moral panic. Now, why is that the case? Well, I think it's the case because they actually were um, attractive targets for, to act as quasi-regulators or substitutes for the Financial Services Authority, which we all know is not a particularly effective organisation. SEC, similarly, not a particularly effective organisation. Um, and these, these were very convenient organisations starting in the mid-1980s as a substitute. In the context, really, of a, a sense of, of um, incompetence and, and sense of uh, desperation on the part of um, government managers about what is to be done about dealing with global finance. I know, let's devolve our responsibilities to self-regulation, to principles-based regulation, and to quasi-regulators like the rating agencies. Well, so in that context, of course, when they screw up, it's a major, major problem because this is what we have identified as the future of our regulatory system. Anyway, let me consider a couple, that's, that's what gives it all uh, uh, this particular sort of heat um, and, as I would suggest, not much light. Let me consider a couple of the specific claims. The first, of course, is the accusation that the agencies face conflicts of interest because of their payment by issuers, bond issuers, uh, pay them uh, for issuing bonds. They make you know, hundreds of millions of dollars out of doing this and are very profitable in organisations. Now, the obvious point to make about this is that we all face, face conflicts of interest. Certainly academics do in dealing with students. Um, most walks of life, I think, share some concern about conflicts of interest. We manage them, right? In the university we have exam boards, we have mark, we have double markers, we have you know, all sorts of mechanisms for dealing with them, and it's no different in the agencies. But I think, frankly, the more telling point is that the rating agencies have been charging is issuers since 1968 and 1970, respectively, and it's only in the, the year 2007 that this becomes an issue. Well, other things being equal, that suggests to me <laughs> that, um, the, that there's not a lot of um, plausibility in the claim that there's a huge conflict of interest there, because what the hell happened in the previous 40 years? The second problem, which I call the Arthur Anderson problem, um, is really that the agencies have created the impression uh, that they're compromised, and they've done that by getting involved in constituting, if you will, uh, um, structured financing. That is, they, they, it's not just that they are involved in offering a rating on um, these uh, instruments backed by a flow of receivables from mortgages and credit card debt and so on. They've actually been involved in organising them and giving advice on the legal documentation and advice on how to structure the trenches and everything. In other words, you know, a lot of advice on actually creating these, these um, financial instruments. And I think, you know, what we can have a, a debate, I suppose, about the, the advisability of that, but clearly on the level of impressions, um, they've created a consulting role for themselves as well as a judging role. And that seems to me, uh, in terms of impressions, not to work particularly well. So I would accept that role, but I would not accept the more banal observation about conflicts of interest. Okay, so let me finish off. First of all, uh, I'd like to say that I think the circumstances we face have their origins in social life. They're not, it's not a technical crisis. It is a crisis of uncertainty. 
uh, it is a crisis where all the sort of technical baggage and so on that our friends in the industry have ceases to function uh, and all of the sort of the motives and impulses of social life um, become unregulated, if you will, um, for them. That seems to me, in this context, narrowly rationalist ways of understanding behaviour miss this point about collective understanding, miss this point about social facts, and therefore is not very useful. Uh, while not blameless, uh, the rating agencies, I think, are victims of an ex sort of exaggerated moral panic rather than a cool appraisal. And given what I just said about um, the future of regulation, um, it, it seems to me we need these people and we need to make what they do um, work. And so in that context, um, more sort of even-tempered account is necessary. I think we have to recognise that the system that we have produces crises. Uh, they're in its nature, they're not in its fault. I mean, this is not a matter of deviation from the norm. This is the nature of the system, to produce asset price bubbles, to produce euphoria, uh, and then to, um, to pop that euphoria in terms, of a, in terms of a crisis. I think endless efforts to create transparency and to create more regulation and so on, not really going to solve those problems. We are, in a sense, we are faced with a continuing uh, dilemma, which is that, that this is in the nature of the beast. Thanks.